You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 262. If it's important to you, you will find a way. If it's not, you will find an excuse. Anonymous. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Now, how many filmmakers out there want to learn how to direct epic action on a budget? I teamed up with veteran film director and best-selling author Gil Beckman to teach a three-day directing video series on how to direct epic action on a budget. If you want access to this free masterclass, just head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash free. Well, guys, I'm super excited about today's episode. We are talking to legendary director Raja Gosnell. And you might not know the name right away, but you will definitely know the movies he's worked on, not only as a director, but early in his career as an editor. As an editor, he worked on films like Mrs. Doubtfire, Home Alone, Home Alone 2, and Pretty Woman, just to name a few. And after working with some of the most amazing directors and filmmakers of their day, like Arthur Hiller, Gary Marshall, John Hughes, and Chris Columbus, he decided to leave the editor's chair and dive into directing. And he's built us a pretty solid directing career for himself, I have to say. He directed the cult hit Never Been Kissed with Drew Barrymore, the blockbuster Big Mama's House. And then his career really kicked into high gear with Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo 2, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, You Mine and Ours, and the international blockbusters, The Smurfs and The Smurfs 2. Raja is a really, really fascinating guy. I loved, love, love our conversation. I wanted to discuss how you direct, you know, animated characters within a live action scene. And he is by far one of the most go-to directors in Hollywood for that. And I really wanted to get into that as well as his editing past, how his editing career helped his directing career. And we also discussed his new movie, Gun and a Hotel Bible. We'll get deep into that as well. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Raja Gosnell. I'd like to welcome to the show Raja Gosnell. How are you doing, Raja? 
I'm great. Good to be here, Alex. Oh, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show, man. I am uh, I am a fan of your work, uh, not only as a director, sir, but also as an editor when you first started out. But we'll get into that in a minute. But I really do appreciate you uh, you coming on and talking shop with uh, with the tribe today, man. I love it, man. Can't, can't wait. All right. So how uh, how did you get into this ridiculous business? <laughs> I, uh, I was very lucky. Um, I started as a, a driver at uh, Robert Altman's Lionsgate Films way, way back. And they were shooting a movie called A Wedding. Um, and my job was to drive to the airport at three in the morning to, um, to pick up the film that was coming in and take it to the lab. And I would spend the rest of my days uh, in, the, in the cutting room um, just doing, you know, whatever, helping out the guys. And, um, you know, they taught me how to use the coding machine, like, I, I think you never cut on film, but like, I, I I cut on film I cut on film once, but this yeah, is the, so you the, had to put these little numbers on so the oh picture yeah, and the bins all oh, this yeah. stuff yeah so um and I was just fascinated um, watching the guys work and with that whole process and um and just sort of you know hung around as much as I could hung around in my extra time and they'd give me stuff just to get rid of me to, to do and I did it well and um, so they hired me um, as an assistant editor. Back in back in the day, with the union, it had to be like you had to be eight years before you could be an editor. There's all these different stages, kind of. Um, but anyways, they hired me, and um, and throughout my course at the t- uh, with Altman, I worked from you know the driver to as first assistant editor on the movie Popeye. So it was a really good run for me. It was great. Wow. You know, it's like super indie there, like something would come off the chem machine and Raj go go out and mix it and and. I go out in the theater and thread up the machines and I had like a little mixing board. And so I, I it was very, very hands-on and, and um, just a wonderful place to learn and great people, uh, you know, Tony Lombardo and Dennis Hill were the editors and Bob was sort of in and out larger than life. And what was, I, I have to stop. I have to stop you. How yeah. was it working with Robert Altman? <laughs> it was amazing and wonderful. And it's everything you think it was crazy. Um, yeah, he was just a larger than life uh, a figure, and and you know we nicknamed him the Bear because because uh, <laughs> he just kind of roll in and um, you know he, we'd be working, he'd roll in like ten o'clock at night and have a scotch in one hand and a joint in the other, and you know just sort of okay, we're going to start working, and then you know you get these crazy notes like uh, let's take the beginning of the scene and put it at the end and put you know, um, but you knew what he was talking about, you know what I mean? You, you, it wasn't that's when I learned it wasn't like specifically what someone's asking for it's the idea of what someone's asking for and it's the note behind the note and it was just a fantastic learning experience and he was a great great guy and um treated treated his people really well and um yeah i miss him yeah i mean i i mean i'm in a huge i mean bob is it's bob i mean he's i mean i mean the player and we can go on and on and on but he's uh, he was amazing he was absolutely amazing. and popeye so you actually you worked with robin you know, in a, in a sense, with Robin Williams yeah. at the beginning of his filmmaking career, and then later on, to, you worked on Miss Doubtfire as an editor as well. Um, so, so you you're working as an assistant editor uh, and and working your way up. And and again, this is a different time. And if everyone listening, like it's it it was a whole different time. There was very much more of a um, apprentice like system in place where you would like like you said do your you you eight years. Yeah, the union requires a certain amount of years before you could advance to the next thing. It's like it's like other unions where they're trying to protect the people that are there, and I think right. they've abolished all that. Um, 
Yeah, because now any, anybody with a Final Cut system or right. resolves, I'm an editor. I'm an editor now. Like it just, yeah. and it, you know, which is great and bad at the exact same time. <laughs> um, but so then you went from uh, your first, I think your first feature that you edited was uh, Lonely Guy, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or was it one of the first? Um, it, I, I was co-editor on that. Um, okay. We edited it with, uh, we edited it, uh, Bill Reynolds, who was an amazing Oscar-winning editor. Uh, it's his first assistant, and um, I think I think I think I got ed- editing credit on that. I think the first, you know, I, I sort of went off to the B movie world to to do things. So there's something like Soldiers' Revenge, and um, and there was a one called um, Beverly Hills Air Force or whatever, um, and so so some comedies like that. And eighties, um, all the eighties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Movies you you've never heard of or, or probably will never see, but um, but it was good learning grounds, man. It was you know. You're sort of on your own and um, and working with very little in terms of like actual material. You had to sort of create scenes and stuff. So uh, it was good learning that ground. And I sort of came back into the studio world um, like, uh, again with uh, with Bill Reynolds um, working on a movie called Making Love. Arthur Keller directed that. And mm-hmm. uh, and we did a few movies with Arthur um, through that run. Uh Lonely Guy uh, was one of them, and Author Author was one of them with yeah. Al Pacino, and so it was. It was a it was a very good run, and I learned a whole different set of skill sets from from Bill Reynolds, um, and that was just sort of the the politics of the editing room and how to manage the personalities, and um, so yeah, it was a it was a, a fantastic playground um, that I grew up in, and, and couldn't ask have asked for a, a better uh, just a better time. Yeah, I mean, and Arthur Hiller, for people who don't know who he is, I mean, he was he, he's a legendary com- a comedy director. I mean, he I mean, he he kind of broke Richard Pryor in yeah. with with Silver Streak and and all of these other. I mean, he I mean, you start looking at his filmography, you're just like, Jesus, man, he's yeah. he was a legend. He really, really was a legend. And and he did like the biggest movie in 1970, which was Love Story. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Like that was like the Titanic of his day. I know. And you look back at that movie and it's so simple and so simply done. And it just, it hit a chord. It, it hit the zeitgeist and mm-hmm. the performances were great and uh, lightning in the bottle, man. That's, that's the film business. You just, sometimes you just don't know what's going to be the thing. And um, I think that's one thing that attract people to the business in general is like, no two days are the same and you can make a great movie and fail miserably and you can make a bad movie and succeed. And, you know, it's, just, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like going to Vegas. I guess. It's an insane, it's an insane, I mean, it's an insane, insane business. And you're right. There is that kind of like chance. I think it's that thing that draw that draws people in. It's like, it's the lottery ticket. It's like at any moment I could just write that script, get that part, direct that project, you know, or do something that, will blow me up. But the, you and I both know the chances of that happening is a lottery ticket. Like it, yeah. it happens once in a while. It's just the, the, the journeymen that kind of just keep hustling, keep working, coming in every day, in and out, that kind of build a career like yourself. Like you were, you, you didn't, you didn't like break out when you were 20. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you, you paid your dues. Thing. I don't think I was ready at 20. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, no, I was definitely not ready any, in any of my 20s, honestly. My entire 20s, I wasn't ready. Um, now, how did you connect with Chris Columbus? 
Um, so uh, I had worked on a, a miniseries called America, spelled with a K, and um, it was, uh, you know, the the premise of it was the Russians, you know, slash Russian bloc had taken over the United States. And it was, well, you know, they didn't spend any time on, like, how that actually happened. There was, uh, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, it was actually sort of omniscient in a way because they the, the story thing was they they somehow got a hold of the communication systems and just convinced everybody that this was the new thing which is wow happening today <laughs> i was about to say it's like oh shit really that 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 is kind of could go down you know because it seemed preposterous at the time you know the, the setup at least was but the show itself was like how would an ordinary american who grew up under uh, an american system reacts to living in a Soviet type system. And, and that was, that was the premise of it. But that was a long way around to saying that, um, the, the post supervisor, whose name was Dave McCann on that, um, liked me. And, um, I was, you know, generally doing good work for, for that one. And so he moved to Disney to be the post, uh, supervisor there. And this movie came in, uh, this young director, Chris Columbus, uh, had directed it and they had just had a massive film, on one sequence and the, the regular editing crew just sort of didn't have time to jump on it. And, um, sort of what I'd done on America was all the mass, the, you know, the big, the big scenes. So he's like, I know a guy. So I came in and I cut basically the blues bar sequence in, um, adventures in babysitting. Nice. Um, which was sort of, it's a fun scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, it's sort of a, a tent pole within that movie. And uh, when Chris got his next gig, he called me up and said, hey, man, I want you to do the movie. So um, I was like, yes, thank you, sir. And yeah. uh, we went off and did a, a little movie called Heartbreak Hotel, which, I remember. Um, I remember. which was fun to make. It, it was a disaster, you know, at the box office yep. and, and critically as well, I think. And I think Chris was thinking, oh, well, there, you know. That's it. I'm done. Ohio. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but then uh, he got a little movie uh, called Home Alone with John Hughes and went off to do that and asked me to do that. And, and so that was that sort of, that was the e-ticket ride for, for both of us. I think. I remember, I remember when heartbreak, um, heartbreak, it was heartbreak, no heartbreak hotel, heartbreak hotel. hotel yeah. I remember cause I still remember the, 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 the video, the VHS box, because I was working at a V I was working at a video store and I, I built a standee. I built a standee for it for our video store. I remember it very carefully. I remember watching it. I enjoyed it when I watched it, um, but I remember it not being a huge hit. And I used to recommend. Yeah, why it. is there only one of these? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was. It wasn't like a, a whole wall of them. There was probably like two or three. I think we got at that point because they were still. See, now I'm dating myself, but it was I think like still like ninety nine dollars or seventy nine dollars to buy a VHS because it wow. wasn't. It wasn't. Um, sell through at that point. Right. So, um, and then you, that, and then you worked on that little film called home alone, which I, I mean, nobody knew, right. Nobody knew that it was going to turn no, into. No, we, no, nobody knew. I and mean, we, we knew we were making a charming little, uh, Christmas movie with a, with a great child actor and, and funny guys, uh, fun, you know, uh, with Joe and Danny and, um, and like, look, the, the previews, it previewed, through the roof in terms of the sneaks, like people are falling out of their seats laughing. I mean, it's funny. And, and um, so, but you know, we, we've done that before. Like the preview, great, you know, but <laughs> it didn't necessarily. No one went to see it, but the studio got excited about it. Um, and John Hughes, uh, at the height of his power during these days, had, yeah. had this 
just had a lot of um he could pretty much he was the 800 pound gorilla i guess he, mm-hmm. he he got what he wanted um and and like the final the final bit of fairy dust that came in was um they they asked chris who he wants to compose and he said i like john williams and they're like okay let's get john williams and Fortunately, John had done. Uh, he did the Boston Pops for a lot of time, for a long time, and they always finished their Christmas things with these these big Christmas numbers and with a big choir and everything. And we had tempt the movie Home Alone with Nutcracker Suite and with you know mm-hmm. sort of all these sort of things that Boston Pops already played. And John was like, "I want to do a Christmas movie," and so it was just perfect happenstance that the the most amazing composer ever. Um, decided to take our little movie and and you know it went it went from a, a nine and a half to an eleven. It just his his little magic touch across everything um, just elevated the movie and you know we got a good release date. Uh, we I think we released against a Rocky or a Rambo, some some Stallone movie. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like we're just number one. Oh, can we, no, Kindergarten Cop. I remember Kindergarten Cop was. Uh, yeah. you, you guys were fighting Kindergarten Cop, yeah, and yeah, everyone was so like, yeah. "How is this little kid beating Arnold Schwarzenegger at the peak of his power?" I know, I know. It was. Uh, I think it was just repeat viewing. It's like someone oh, would but, view it and they'd say, "You got to see this." It grew. It grew the second week. I remember it grew in in box office the second week so like if it made 20 yeah. million it made like 30 million the next week or something I like think that it was number one like through april or <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i said about the other movies or what but it was just uh it was lightning in a bottle completely but you but you were involved with a lot of lightning in a bottle because you got you know home alone and then you got to work with gary marshall with pretty woman which also you know, I, I know I kind of know some of the story behind that, the three thousand uh, the three thousand bucks and that the, the original ending of that movie. And right. um I think one of the producers was a teacher at my school, my film school. So okay. I kind of heard a lot of the inside stuff of what happened before any before it was public knowledge. And you know, Gary kind of he's another like he was a he's like a Chris Columbus. He kind of come in and just fairy dust on exactly. and it yeah. just and it just turned into this insane hit um yeah, and, the, and the chemistry between richard and julia was just like you know I, gary was really good at making that happen but there mm-hmm. was also an extra thing that no one could have predicted that that just happens between those two mm-hmm. um yes yeah, so, i mean it's basically a cinderella story with a prostitute it's like let's <laughs> do it and and uh, bookending it with a guy you know walking through the streets talking about you know living your dreams and yes you know, like let's just own that it's a fairy tale you know what i mean so did you who was that gary that was a gary idea that was a gary, uh, yeah that, was, that gary. was so like you guys like you weren't hiding that this was just a fairy tale like this obviously will never happen in real life like this is <laughs> well we didn't want to say that <laughs> saying like well yeah i mean obviously you know he he, he climbs you know climbs the staircase at the end and mm-hmm. you know he, there's a line about a prince and what he what is yes. uh what did uh, she do when he saved her? He says she saved him right back. You know, it was oh. all, it was, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a great movie that it holds up beautifully. And, um, and yeah, I, I give it down to Gary and, and the, the chemistry between those two actors. Yeah. And then, and then again with Ms. Doubtfire, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, another, I mean, how, okay, I have to ask you, cause I've never spoken, I've, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who've worked with Robin, uh, written mm-hmm. with Robin, um, but I've never heard anyone that's edited Robin Williams. How do you edit Robin Williams? <laughs> because I'm assuming you don't have just one take. You probably have 30 amazing takes per shot that you need. So how, yeah. do you, how does that work? 
I actually I was lucky enough to edit Robin twice. Um, right. I did most of the broadcast sequences in Good Morning Vietnam. Oh. So, um, wow. yeah, that was great. That was another one of my, my little uh, uh, lucky breaks that we need a big scene guy. Here's a scene. Here's a movie that has a bunch <laughs> That's of, your niche. Like, that, was your, that was your box. Like, send, in, send in Roger. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, um, so yeah, the second time, um, yeah, I mean, the shooting style was just like, let's get, let's get at least one or two scripted just so we have that in the, in the bottle and then, then Robin go. And, um, and yeah, I would literally have 30 takes, uh, you know, if, if you want to get a, a little technically into the weeds, it was mm-hmm. the first movie I'd done electronically and I was on a Lightworks oh, system. Lightworks. Lightworks. Wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah system it was great but um but like you know remember those big towers that every computer oh, oh yeah so and that, and that was like 50 megs <laughs> it was like megs, yeah but... you would have like a exactly. refrigerator and it was like 100 megs <laughs> yeah exactly so the, the lightworks could manage three of those things at a time and by the time we finished shooting and we shot the equivalent of a million feet of film mm-hmm. i had like 20 of those things spread out so to, to run the movie i have to go to the specialist and say, plug in number five and number three and number 12 over there so I can run this scene, you know, because it's like, um, but yeah, just cutting that look, look, I mean, it was, it was just an embarrassment of riches. And so, um, I actually don't think I could have done it on film just to, to have access to all that stuff. And the hardest thing was, um, the hardest thing was a lot of times like the best setup for a joke would be over here in, in take seven, but then like the best payoff and reaction would be over here in take 10 or 11. Um, but he said this one in present tense and he delivered this one right. in past tense and, right. cause he's just going, you know? Um, and so I'd have to go through like, you know, hours of film to find like an ED to put the end of that word. So that's past tense. So just like little things that you'd never think of um, is, is sort of what went into sort of building all that. But, from from a thirty thousand foot perspective, uh, my job was just to get the best Robin into the movie, and um, and I think for the most part we did. It's it's a really it's got a lot of heart, you know. No oh, surprise, yeah. Columbus. He's he's amazing, and Robin gave his all. Um, and Robin in the dress, you know, I, I'm buying that pitch, you know. I'm buying I that mean, pitch. <laughs> it's not a hard sell, like Robin. Robin is an old, uh, an older yeah, <laughs> British, <laughs> British woman. <laughs> that scene in the restaurant, man. I mean, it read funny on the oh page. Oh my God. That is a beautifully and edited it's scene. Not funny, but like when it came all together and we had the music in and, and I got to give Pierce, Pierce Brosnan a ton of credit. Just being a straight man is, is, is Robin's just going off and like every euphemism for, for screwing that he threw at him. <laughs> No, I've never heard before. I'm like, oh my god! It, and Pierce is just like trying to keep it together, trying to keep it. As soon as uh, Chris would yell, "Cat!" It's like, oh my god! You know, so yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's a, it's essentially editing improv almost. It's like editing like a, an improv session because, like you're saying, one part's present tense here. There's like the best ones here, but you can't edit it. And I've had that experience as well. Not at that extreme, of course, but it's not easy for people listening editing that kind of like, if it's not on the script specifically and you're just kind of going off, it's not easy to cut that together. And I can only imagine Robin Williams. <laughs> I mean, it could have gone with that one, but it wasn't as good. Like I was just determined to get the, the best of the best in there. 
And um, yeah, we didn't, you know, we didn't take a lot out of that movie. I think it pretty, you know, honestly, the movies you mentioned, Home Alone and Pretty Woman and um, and Mrs. Doubtfire, they all pretty much worked from the beginning. Like minor changes, a little bit of this, but no, like, oh my God, we got to fix the whole second act or anything, which happens in a lot of movies. We got to reshoot an ending, which happens in a lot of movies. So uh, I guess, I guess the message is when they work, they work. And um, those movies work great. So now you, so you've, you're, you know, one of the top editors in Hollywood at this point, your career is on fire. You're working on some of the biggest blockbusters, you know, whether you knew they were blockbusters at the time or not, you still, you know, the luck is amazing from home alone to pretty woman. You know, those two are just, were out of the box. No one really knew what it was going to be. And there's many other films like that in your, in your film. I I take no offense to the luck because it was lucky as hell. I mean, it was just a lucky guy. (laughs) I mean, I mean, as an other editors and they're like, you really stepped in shit. (laughs) A lot of times. I mean, looking at, at that looking at your editing filmography, you know, filmography, just like Jesus, man, like he had a how did he just keep getting a, a hit after hit after hit? It was and, and, you know, like obviously, Miss Doubtfire was kind of like in the bag, like we knew it was going to be a hit just because of what it was, but but you kept doing that. So now you're the hottest editor in town, uh, one of the hottest editors in town. Um, your career is on fire, and you're like, you know what, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna retire. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just too much. I have had too much success. Exactly. I need to. I need to do I'm what. Too much fun. Like this I'm is, having too know, much fun. Uh, no one should be having this much fun, and I'm getting paid for what I love to do, and I'm working with the greatest artist in the in the field. I need to stop this. So you decide at that point to go. You know what? I'm going to do what everybody says they want to do. I'm going to direct. So, so the question is. Why did you want to direct? Is that something that was always in the back of your head? Because it was for me. Like I jumped into editing, but I always wanted to be a director. Editing was just a means to an end for me. Was that was that like it for you, or or did you just decide, you know what, I want to try this? It was never a, like a burning desire, you know. Um, but uh, as an editor, as you know, you see all the takes come in, and you see, you know, you see the coverage, and like. Where's where's the close-up going to be? Where's the close-up? No, oh, there's the close-up. Okay, so I mean, you know how to cover a scene just from being an editor, right. you know. And, if, and you know, so I figured I, I could probably manage that part. I guess I guess pulling back a little bit. Um, look, you comedy editors never win Oscars, and so I was definitely aware of that. Um, mm-hmm. And so every every year the editing Oscar would go to some action movie or something, which was amazingly well edited, but I knew where I was. I wasn't, you know, so the question for me was, do I try and transition somehow into that world, um, or do I do I try and direct, you know? And, um, and that was... That was just sort of like in the back of my head, like like you were saying, nothing was uncomfortable. Life was life was pretty good. Um, and then an interesting thing happened, uh, and this is no one to blame, but but uh, Mrs. Doubtfire won a Golden Globe, and Chris's mom was sick, so he wasn't there. So the line producer Mark Radcliffe, who I love, um, went up to accept the award, and he had his little list, and he he like basically thanked everyone down to the caterer. Except me, oh. and so I'm watching that, and and like, like it's one of those moments. It's like at that moment, I figured, okay, like I'm not mad. I, I know Mark. I love Mark. Uh, I, I know it wasn't intentional or anything, but 
it also told me I'm just a comedy editor. You know, I, that's so. If I if I ever want to, you know, I don't know. It's just like at that point, this the the the, the gong banged a little bit loud. I was like, okay, I'm gonna try this. So. Um, uh, my wife and I were writing uh, during all this time, and so sent out the script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I actually talked to an agent about maybe representing me as a director, and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I called the uh, the editing, uh, the below-the-line editing agent at that agency and said, hey, you know, I may, I may come over to your agency, you know, if they represent me in, in other areas. And the phone rang like five minutes later and said, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so basically my editing, um, my editing sale ability got me in the door at UTA. Um, but then another lucky thing happened. This is the story of a, one lucky guy. Um, Hughes uh, decided to make Home Loan 3. Chris was not going to do it. And so it's just sort of who are we going to get? And, you know, I told my agent, uh, I, call, I saw this like a little blurb in the trades. And I called my agent and said, what about me? And he said, oh, I don't know. I'll call. So um, John was like, yeah, I'll talk to Raj. And I flew to Chicago and had the meeting. And, um, and you know, within three hours, I was, I was on the plane back to L.A. and heard that I was directing Home Alone 3. So I was like, okay, shit, now I got to learn to do this. <laughs> and, and, and John Hughes is being your producer on this? Yes. So, so how, what's that like? <laughs> How is what's it like having the eight hundred pound gorilla as your boss? Like, like, and you've been on that level because it's one thing to be the eight hundred pound gorilla as the boss of the editor, but there's a lot of there's a lot of people between you and him. <laughs> there's nothing between you two at this point. I should put it this way: he was eight hundred pound gorilla to the studios. Like he Got was, it. he was like the nuclear umbrella. So this this magical umbrella fell over your production. And not, no bullets from the outside were able to penetrate it. So that was that was that was John's version of exercising his eight hundred pound gorilla. Uh, you know, in fact, he stayed. He shot in Chicago. He never worked in L.A. He shot in Chicago and posted in Chicago. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Just to keep those guys away, you know what I mean. The only person allowed in was Jake Bloom, his uh, his lawyer, and um, and so yeah, it's it actually great. Um, you know, once John writes a script, like that's what you're shooting. You know, there's no changes. Uh, so if, if I wanted to do something a little different, I'd shoot his version. I'd shoot my version. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, so yeah, it was actually it actually went pretty well um, on schedule, on budget, and blah 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 blah. And the, the movie, the movie didn't do great. I, I can't sit back and say Home Loan 3 was as good as the first one, you know, because mm -hmm. it's just not. But um, it got me in the director's chair and got me going and um, and got me to Never Been Kissed, which is... Uh, With Drew Barrymore. Yeah, I remember that movie. That was a cute, it was really cute, you know, kind of after, romantic comedy. That's the next one that comes back. Like it's, you know, you think you, you had this whole career and the people like, I love Never Been Kissed, you know? Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's nice with the whole pretty woman in Home Alone, but never been kissed. <laughs> it's a beloved movie. And, it is. It's and so cute. Twenty-five year anniversary recently, and you know, I did a couple of interviews or whatever. But it's just, it's just one of those movies that uh, is of the time, and and I have to, I have to give ninety, I have to give a hundred percent of the credit to Drew because she's just so vulnerable. <sighs> 
movie and the the Josie Grossy and um, yeah. you know the writing's great and she she and um, Nancy uh, Givonne produced it and we've got a great cast together so all great elements but I mean at the end of the day when she's out there on that that pitching mound and the clock is ticking down and she's in her little dress and her little tear forms it's like you know come on <laughs> yeah. it's it's Drew at, at the height of her powers. Drew must be happy. You know, the audience was just dying for this movie to end. <laughs> and did. And, um, yeah, just so great cast, great, great comedy all around. And, and, um, and super fun to do. Super fun to do. Now, what was the most difficult part of doing that trans, uh, that trans, uh, jumping from editing to directing? Cause uh, there's not a lot, there's a lot of post guys probably listening who dream of walking down your path or even just trying to get into the directing side. What was the most difficult part of that for you? You got to learn to talk. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but like when you're an editor, if you have an idea, there it is. I've got the sound, the music, the dialogue, like here's my idea. And then uh, when you're a director, there's obviously not nothing to cut. There's only words on a page. And so, you know, you meet with studio people and you meet with department heads and it's like you have to learn to verbalize what's in your head, a visual concept that's in your head. And, and that was that was a, a learning curve for me. Um, and uh, and and, you know, but I, I feel like I feel like I did pretty well at it. Look, I, I've never been the smartest guy in a room um, and I've accepted that and I, I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room, but uh, I'm a pretty damn good listener i think that's maybe my superpower so when studio head a and studio head b say completely the opposite things but think they're agreeing then i think i know what to do with that and take the figure out what the real note is and manage that and and work all that so that's that's the difference in in in, in an editing room it's you and the director and then maybe the producer near the end um it, the politics are very small um Whereas on in a movie in pre-production the politics are very big, and then on set you know the politics are are, are big too. So, so being able to um, describe your vision, whether it's to you know the uh, the head of the studio who you want to hire you to this great actor or actress who you hope will agree to be in your movie, down to you know down to the um the set design to the director of photography like like focusing in on what what their thing is and trying to trying to put into words you know what 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 you see and um and then also sort of letting go like uh which tie would you like sir either one that's your department you know like there's certain things you know <laughs> certain things i really really trust you trust you guys to do the best possible thing here because you're wonderful at it. No, and then you so never been kissed and home alone obviously weren't huge monster hits at the time. Um, even though they you know, never been kissed has definitely gained its popularity over the years. Uh, but your big first big hit was Big Big Mama's House. And yeah. not, Big Mama's House with Martin Lawrence, that kind of yeah. was that he had already done bad boys at that point. So he was already on his way up. But Big Mama's yeah. House really yeah. cemented him, right? He Done, uh, we just done Blue Streak, which did right. really well, really funny. Um, Blue Streak, yeah, yeah, Blue Streak, yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, when he was the copy on Chasing the, yeah, he, the yeah, he just done that, and that movie came out as we were sort of talking about this. Um, and so yeah, no, he was he was definitely a bankable star, and um, 
And yeah, Fox, uh, I was working at, I had never been kissed for Fox and, uh, and also Home Alone. And so this was a Fox movie and they're like, what about Raj? And so I met with Martin and, and met with the producer, David Friendly, and it seemed like a, it seemed like a good match and, um, and got to do that. So that was, that was great. The, um, the, the biggest, the biggest trick on that is that, that, you know, Martin could only oh, really survive in, in all that, not survive, but, but, you know, be functional for a few hours a day. So just the logistics of, you know, and the pressure. Out. So yeah. from a production standpoint, it'd be like, um, here's a master, here's Martin's close up, new set, here's a master, here's Martin's close up, new set, you know, then after Martin was done, we sort of come back to the original thing and, you know, shoot, shoot, um, coverage. So it was hard, like to, it was just, it, it was just a, a different way of planning uh, a shooting day. And, and so making sure I didn't miss something. And so I was a little on edge the whole time. Like, I hope I, hope I don't need Martin for this next you know, couple shots or whatever. So, but all in all, it was great. Martin was great. I mean, he gave it all into that big mama role. Uh, Neil Long, fantastic. Um, Terrence Howard was a sort of a great bad guy. Um, we had fun, the, uh, just, you know, fun music and, and him doing that big church scene, which sort of brought down the house when he was up there singing and dancing. And that's that was just like an idea, like, oh yeah, Big Mama should testify. And then, you know, so Don Reimer, the late Don Reimer, um, wrote that and just wrote an amazing something about the in the back of an El Camino. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was just perfect. Um, and then Martin delivered it, and then the music started. He started dancing, and we're all rolling cameras, and it was just like, you know, it felt like like that. So it was. It was really a fun, it was just a fun movie to do. And like, we originally had a, a release date. We were shooting in the spring. We originally had a release date like in October or something. And then Tom Sherrick, who, who was the head of distribution at the time for Fox, came to me and said, look, there's this uh, Nutty Professor 2. It's coming out in July. We'd like to get out ahead of them. What do you think? I said, yeah, if it's better for the movie, we'll do it. And so basically... Long story short, we wrapped the movie. Um, had a had a we were on the mixing stage in two weeks and had to an answer print like four weeks later. Like like we were wow shortest feature post ever, and um, and fortunately it worked. You know, yeah, it did, and and, and yeah, it was a huge worldwide hit. Um, yeah. And then and then you got into the next phase of your career that I see is the CG. Uh, character phase where CG you critter world, yes, the, yes, the, the CG critter world where you you obviously uh, you know you took you took on Scooby Doo, which was uh, and then this is two thousand two, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. around around there, right? Two thousand, yeah, I think two thousand, and then the first one came out in two thousand one, and the second one two thousand three, yeah, no, two thousand two, two thousand four, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's around it's around there, and yeah, and you know to be fair. You know, CG was, you know, we we done t we've already done the T Rex, um, you know, but you were kind of on the cutting edge because there wasn't a lot of if I and please correct me if I'm wrong, there wasn't a lot of animated CG characters who were just like full blown characters who were going to be interacting with live action and talking. Like I don't remember a lot of other movies around that time that were doing that, so it was kind of on the edge of technology. Uh, am I wrong on that, or was there other films in I that? Think it kind of was, and just in terms of the amount of screen yeah. time, yeah, yeah, it was and, a huge um, amount, and the amount of interaction. Like 
Shaggy's got a whole Scooby. How do we work that out? Yeah. Shaggy's got to, you know, <laughs> they got to break through windows or whatever. So, so there was a lot of sort of brain work. I had a, a you know, really good visual effects crew. Um, and then, uh, you know, also had to figure out because a lot of times the visual effects people will say, yeah, we can do that for, you know, it, but it's going to cost, you know, $20 million. And so, you know, that's not going to happen. So how are we going to do it for not $20 million? You know? So you have to sort of reverse engineer things a lot of times. And that's just the process. Um, but, you know, we all we all want it to be good. And uh, Rhythm and Hughes, I think, was our yeah. was our visual effects house. Yeah, they were they were sort of famous for for, for critters. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I got to give a lot of credit to, to Matt Lillard because like, you know, just be them walking, you know, the, the gang walking into a scene and he's sort of uh, mind this sort of thing, bumping his leg, you know, like, like when you're walking with a dog, you know, mm-hmm. where it comes in and he just, everything he did, once Scooby wasn't there, you just had a sense that he was there. And Matthew was just sort of aware of, of the Scooby of it all. So that <laughs> and, um, yeah, and James Gunn wrote the, wrote a great crazy script, and um, you know we got Rowan Atkinson to, to be our great crazy uh, Spooky Island guy. And so yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun and um, a lot of you know a lot of R and D on the dog, like. Every time some new movie comes out, there's always some outrage about the character. You know, it, yeah. it was about it was about Scooby. It was about uh, you know, uh, it was about Blue Aladdin. Someone gave me a call about the uh, when when Will Smith was going to be the Blue Aladdin. And yeah, Sonic. it was. It was. Um, but, 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 to be fair, the Blue Aladdin and the and the Sonic were kind of terrifying at the first the first run that, that they had to fix it up. <laughs> Sonic was terrifying. I'm sorry. Sonic- <laughs> Sonic, Sonic looks like a, a, a woodland creature. It was so terrifying. I was like, Major what is guy. that? But anyway, so there's all this sturm and drang around the movie. And and another thing that was weirder on that movie is um, it was sort of the, the dawn of the internet. And what Drudge Report was to politics, Ain't It Cool, Ain't News, cool was News was to um, the film business. And everybody read this this site. And, and uh, without a frame shot, like the Harry Knowles just like fucking hated me and fucking hated James Gunn and hated the script. And so wow. like we'd be in pre-production working along and they'd be like, there's another post. What's it say? Yeah. You know? that, so it was weird, like working under that kind of scenario where we're this outside um, provocateur, I guess, is, is like causing all this angst, not just, not just targeting because it's targeting you, but also in the industry, like, like it just said a whole thing because it was so powerful at that time. So that was, that was the only weird thing working under that kind of thing where we were under constant attack for when we hadn't even shot a film uh, or even had a finished script. So that's where I know the Marvel people deal with it all the time. Now it's become sort of a more normal thing where everybody hates everything until it's done. Um, so, and I can't imagine what the Star Wars people go through. My God, that, oh, oh my. those fans are like, "You better not do this." No, it's so. it's brutal. And and for people that didn't that weren't around at that time, Ain't It Cool News, because um, they reviewed a couple of my films, and they were very pleasant. Thank God. But at the time, I mean, they they basically single handedly destroyed Batman and Robin. 
like that 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 last they 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 destroyed it before it ever came out and it never it never got off the ground not that it's a particularly great you know installment of the batman franchise but they destroyed it and and you weren't that far off from that time period it was like i think it was 97 when batman rum so they were still at the height of their power so i could only imagine all they heard was like scooby-doo live action who the hell is this guy screw it and then they just went after you and it he definitely was a provocateur. I agree with you 100%. Now, I mean, you know, you and James Gunn and a couple other, you know, they, they've done okay. And, and and not many people are talking about any cool news anymore. So, <laughs> In fact, interesting, and I haven't talked to James about this, so this is going to be complete speculation. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the tweets that James got in trouble for mm. last year or whatever – yeah. When I when I read those, it's like this is ain't it cool language. Like how many yeah. how many times would Harry Knowles say, "Yeah, I just on some kid's head. It was so good." Like that was just the language of that time and the language of that site. And so he and I both, you know, took a lot of punishment from that site. And my instinct was just like, I'm never going to turn on the internet again. <laughs> I have no socials. Blah, blah, blah. But he is a much smarter person than I am, and he like engaged. And um, and started a Facebook, and he, he completely got immersed in that world, and so it was no surprise to me to see those. And but of course, in in our in in the time that it came out, like all context was lost, and and um, so you know, it's a little a little sub note to the ain't it cool story. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, like, look, if we all start pulling things back from when we were high, in high school and things that we did when we were in our 20s, like, I, I'm so glad there was no social media when I was a teenager or in the 20s. I can only imagine, like, it, 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 it just would be insane. So I agree with you. It's like, Look at the reference point. You know, it's it is what it is. Um, now, I've I've been dying to ask you this because you've done you know between the Scooby Doo's, um, the Smurfs, which you also did. Um, it, you know, what kind of pressure is there? And can we kind of touched upon it right now? But what kind of pressure is it on you to be directing such a, a large IP? And how do you balance the, the loyalty to the story you're trying to tell versus? you know, making the fans happy, making the the people who followed these characters for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, whatever the, the length of, of time they've been around. How do you balance that? Because you didn't do it just with one icon. You did it with two, the Smurfs and Scooby-Doo. So how do you how do you balance that? Um, the answer is we do our best. You know, uh, <laughs> we do our best to honor the original source material, but provide something new. Um, because why else would you be making a movie if there's if you're just going to tell the same stories? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, you know, it's a it's a whole team. When, when there's when there's IP at this level, um, there's producers, there's studios, they're they're, they're writing hundred million dollar checks. I mean, the, everyone, it's, it's all eyes on this, and everyone has notes, and so. Um, so it's really, it becomes a committee, which is, you know, can be a good thing, a bad thing. Um, but, uh, but, but just, there was a lot of eyes and, and a lot of really smart people working on both of those movies. Um, so, but in terms of like, like my job as a director, I, I just sort of try and protect the story as much as I can and protect the characters within that story. And, um, and, and be as true to make the best version of the script that I was hired to, to shoot. You know what I mean? 
Um, and, and that's, that's when we can go into it. I mean, you know, making a movie is, is there's this sort of global, like, this is the, this is, these are the tracks we're on. We're going to stay on these tracks. And these are, these are the borders that we can't go outside of. And then there's all that, you know, from the 30,000 feet, but on the day to day, you got two cameras, you got this, you got this, you got the techno crane, you got this, you know, just like, I want to get this shot where, you know, Neil Patrick Harris is running and the Smurf does this and everything else. So, so once the cameras are rolling, you totally flip from, from what you're talking about, which is how do you, how do you honor the IP? And it's more into just like executing the day to day of a really, really complicated Mm -hmm. movie. And then when you get in post, now you're back, you're back, you're wearing the first hat again. And, and in a sense, you know, I've, I've had a lot of movies that sort of, got beat up in post by by having sneak previews and stuff so scooby is sort of a pretty famous example of it um i'm sure you're aware of that story yeah which the, one the r-rated scooby-doo story no i don't i don't know that story oh my god okay so the first scooby uh that the james wrote and that the studio greenlit by the way um mm-hmm. was uh was to the scooby cartoon what austin powers was to james bond very self-referential, very naughty, I guess. Very sort of a lot of winks at the at the audience who grew up with it, who always wondered, was Shaggy like stone? high? He was he always was high. high. He was I always. There are images I've seen them in the cartoon where they were in pot fields. There was pot yeah. fields in the background. It was something that everybody knew. There was smoke yeah. in the in in the mystery machine. We knew what Snoop, Scooby Snacks were. Come on, guys. Yeah. I mean. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Was, Vel, was Velma maybe gay? I don't know. There's so, there a whole bunch of that. Yeah. Stuff. So this this was all in the movie. Um, and <laughs> in a kids in a kids movie. movie in a kids movie. <laughs> well, now there's that. Hang on. That's the distinction. See. Right. Um, we we didn't necessarily go out thinking we were making a kids movie. We went out thinking we were making Austin Powers ish. You know, the, the Scooby of Austin Powers. Right. Um, uh, but then, you know, after we shot this this movie and we're in post-production, um, there was some marketing survey done and, you know, the marketing came back where, who's, who's the core audience for this movie? And it turned out to be, no surprise, uh, parents and their kids because that's what, that's what the previous IP was. And so, um, so they sent us to sneak the movie, like in a really conservative part of the country, with kids, uh, parents, and their, you know, three to four-year-olds. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. And, of course, we got killed. You know, we we were basically sent there to get killed. Right. Uh, And then so we had to cut the movie down. And, uh, you know, so basically the head of the studio at the time says, you know, until it plays great for this core audience, like I'm not going to support anything that you guys are doing with that over there. So, anyways, that that's the story of the of the of the uh, uh, unreleased Scooby movie. Uh, we we didn't set out to make an R, by the way. We're not stupid. It was right. going to be like G13, but um, but it actually did go to the ratings board, and it gave it an R because they misunderstood one word, which was the 
Uh, they, we had this little voodoo character, and he said they are a new key beast, and they they had something very much dirtier than that. So, so, uh, so, so then with the Schneider cut that just has been done, is there going to be a Raja cut of Scooby Doo one day? Like, are you gonna are they ever gonna allow to release the R rated version of Scooby? I have pitched it. I pitched it, but unfortunately, uh, <laughs> Scooby Doo is still a big IP there, and, and yeah. the IP is still you know for that that age group. So I don't think it's ever going to see the light of day. Um, but uh, but it would have been fun. That, but on, on the other hand, I'm also really glad because because uh, you can watch it with your kids, and sure. a, a lot of people grew up with it, and they come to me now, and you know they may not they may not have seen it uh, if if we had gone with the first version. So you know maybe 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 that was the right thing to do at the end of the day. So so after doing all these CG critters, man, I have to ask you how yeah. how do you direct them? How do you direct actors interacting with you know critters like you know I've you know, I've worked on visual effects shows that, you know, oh, yeah, there's a there's a monster over here or the background's going to change there. But like you're literally having dialogue with a Smurf or with yeah. a dog. Like, how do you direct that and how technically do you go it's, into that? It's mostly hard on the actors themselves because, mm -hmm. um, for instance, uh, well, with Scooby. So, OK, so we go. So here's the scene. I've blocked it in my head and I have it all written down what's going to happen. And so when we go to rehearse, we've got, you know, we've got a guy with a full-size Scooby sort of walking <laughs> along besides, and Scooby's going to land here, he's going to look up at Matt, he's going to do this, he's going to do that, he's going to wander off over here. Um, so you basically block it with a, with a maquette, you know, with a full-size thing. Um, and then it was up to Matt and the, um, and we maybe put like a green mark on the floor where the look to Scooby would be, those, those sorts of tricks. Um, but in terms of like all that interaction, it's just, it's Matt sort of just being a great mime and, and just making like feeling the weight of Scooby and all that hard stuff is, it all falls to the actor at that point. Um, same with Neil Patrick Harris. There was a, uh, one of one of the favorite scenes in Smurfs was they're all in his office and they're messing with his things and there's Smurfs everywhere and there's this one's got dialogue and that one's got dialogue and that one's got dialogue and um, and we have voice characters on set they're just basically firing these lines at him and we have little little puppeteers who like. If the Smurf's going to touch a light, we have a little puppeteer like tug the light at a certain time, and so that's all the fun behind the scenes stuff because you got to move stuff in in the real world to interact with the characters. Um, so we're always like little moving little things around them. So, um, so my directing is okay, Neil. There's going to be a Smurf here. He's going to go here. He's going to climb up this lamp. He's going to turn and say har har har, and then he's going to do something. And in the meantime, this Smurf's going to be talking. That Smurf's going to be talking. And so, the, and the scene comes out great, but you can see like halfway through where Neil like completely loses his looks and he just goes like, ah, but it's funny because he's like overwhelmed by all these smurfs. So uh, it kind of, it kind of comes down to, so we rehearse it with these little smurfs and we do the voices and where they're going to go and where they're going to be. And, um, and then put it, put a few key, um, eyelines for the actors, but then, then it's just, then it's just off and go. And, um, and then you know, uh, start the animation. And, and, and so not only do you work with CG characters, but you also do two things that every, everybody says never to direct, which is children and, and animals. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you've done a few movies with children and animals. Yes. So, uh, and then not only animals, 
but animals that will have some sort of CG element attached them because they're talking animals. Right. Talking dogs. That's my how the, that's like you're like and this is so funny. This is Hollywood, man. <laughs> it, it is so funny because because you did Beverly Hills Chihuahua, right? Which was a was kind of was like wasn't a big project. It was like a smaller, a smaller project. It wasn't expected to do big business, right? If I'm right. if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it was uh, we hope we hope it would do well. Um right. But, but we didn't have like a big all-star cast. Right, right, exactly. And and then, you know, you've got these dogs and you've got these CG elements involved. Like, how, how do you do that? Like, the first time I saw that was Babe. And I saw Babe and I'm like, oh. and Babe was, you know, Babe is Babe is one of the, that's amazing little film. Babe picked it all up. I, I, Babe is the one that started this whole, oh, this whole, yeah. oh, but I was going to say like, Hollywood's such a weird place because now because you did Beverly Hills Chihuahua was like, well, Raja's the the talking dog guy. Yeah, yeah. Like if you if you're gonna make yeah. a talking dog movie, it's Raja because you've done it once and it did it successfully once. So now you're the dude. It's just the way Hollywood works. There's no Aaron Sorkin scripts in my inbox. I'm just saying. <laughs> Those just don't make it to me for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, so I I mean the process is the same, I guess. In that, well, the process is different in that basically. I'm directing uh, on set. I'm directing the dogs, you know, mass movements, um, mm -hmm. and the and the dog's face in a sense where the dog looks and how the dog stands. But you know, it's basic things. If the dog's supposed to be happy and peppy, then it wags its tail and stuff like this. If it's supposed to be sad or or whatever, it's it's, it's kind of droopy and um, and then getting them to sort of you know do eye lines with each other. Uh, <laughs> that's that's just great sort of amazing. Um, it's it's great working with the the trainer team because they're all off camera going you know max 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 look over here and then um you know sometimes like i had a character delgado in uh beverly hills chihuahua and he was hiding a secret so i decided that most of his lines i actually have him not looking at chloe when he said them so i could just kind of let let him be a dog for a minute and the, the dog would sort of look over here and then he's going to look over there and then we sort of bring him back in and then we let him look over here. So, but going on with dialogue, it's like, yeah, kid. Yeah. You know, back when I was uh, a cop, you know, we, uh, we didn't <laughs> talk about those kind of things. So, so just like having, having in your head, like, wow, if it was a person, what would the attitude be? How do I apply that to a dog in terms of that to just to get that attitude. So that's, that's the trick. And I'm, I'm sure no one in your audience is ever going to want to direct the talking dog movie. So, <laughs> well, no, you'd be surprised. Like I, I had on the show, um, the creator of Air Bud, uh, All right. and 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 he's he's he is, he's, he's made a, uh, an entire uh, industry of that. Like hats he, off to the guy. That's he amazing. he 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 was he was a screenwriter. He created it, and he think he was involved with the first two or three, and now he just collects a check every single time they put out a new Air Bud movie. Um, but. You know, it, it's ah. just so you explaining it. I've like I've never sat down because I've never direct. I've had I've directed children a bunch, but yeah. directing, I think animals. Like I kind of just let them go. I never thought of them as like because you're, ta you're talking dogs. It's not like just dogs. It's just like talking dogs. So you have to think about yeah, them. Characters. You got You got to think about how you're going to direct them and how you're going to move and how the eye line's going to work and and do you make your days? I mean, is that is that a like? Oh. Always make your days with animals. Like that must. I've never gone over schedule on any movie I've ever done. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, I got every shot I wanted, but I've never gone over. 
Yes, famous words of every director. I made the oh, date, but I didn't get. We never look. Is there ever been a day that you walked on set and gotten every single shot on your shot list? Yeah, but then something must have been wrong. It's <laughs> an alternate universe at that yeah, point. I had shots here, so I can write scratch them off. <laughs> <laughs> I give my shot to the first AD, and the first AD is like, "This is not. It's very ambitious, Alex. That was the, that's a. It's very ambitious. I'm like, I know." 50% of it's gone, but it's there just in case. <laughs> I'm always like, we could get lucky. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, it's, I know it's 12 hours and it's only, it's and it's the same 12 hours for everybody on the planet, but for us, it's really going to, time will stop and we're going to get an extra five hours. <laughs> it's the same lighting setup, you know. Yeah, exactly. We don't even have the to move DP, the camera. The DP's like, no, it's not. <laughs> We'll just shoot a wide in 8K and just punch in. It'll be fine. <laughs> we'll shoot just one wide and we'll punch in. It'll be great. And DPs love that. <laughs> now, um, now tell me about your new film, uh, Gun and a Hotel, which has no talking dogs, um, has no CG uh, critters um, or a, a giant dog or, or, or Smurfs. So uh, tell me, it gets a little bit outside of your, your wheelhouse. So I'm curious All about this. All my tricks have been taken away. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so it's it's a drama. Um, I guess it's a drama that involves faith. Uh, and uh, the logline is that a young man walks into a hotel room. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, contemplating an act of violence, and he encounters a personified hotel Bible. And and the Bible basically spends the next hour trying to talk him out of doing this act of violence. And it started as an award-winning play. Um, and we went to see the play, and it was just, you know, great writing, great acting. Um, but what really struck me was on the sidewalk afterwards, like people just in knots and they're talking about this movie. They're having these passionate conversations um, about this movie. And um, and it just really touches people. And it touches people like if you come from a church background, like there's there's a voice for you. If you come from a completely never been to church in your entire life, there's a voice for you. Um, it's just it's extremely well balanced and, and extremely well executed um, discussion about morality. and. Um, and scripture and, uh, you know, just, just all things, all things, uh, heavy like that. But it's also, it's got a lot of, um, a lot of humor in it too. These characters, they, they sort of, they debate, but they also bond. And it's, uh, just an incredibly sort of emotional journey that these characters go on together for, for their one hour together, um, until the, until the clock ticks down. That's amazing. Is it out already, or has it has been released it's yet? The uh, January fifth. It's on all the streaming sites: iTunes, Amazon, um, all, all the normal places. So, and and I will put a link to that in the show notes. I advise well, everyone to take a look at it because it sounds extremely interesting. It sounds like actually really, uh, you know, it feels like a play on film um, in in a way, but I think in a good way. Um, I think part of the Part of the dramatic appeal of it basically takes place in one room, but this character can't get out. Like he can't leave, and he he keeps being confronted by this by this personified Bible. So I think the the claustrophobic nature of it actually lends to the um, the dramatic nature of it as well. And um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm feeling really excited about it, and um, 
you know, hoping someone, some people see it. We've gotten really interesting. We've gotten um, really good response from um, on the secular side, but also on the uh, on the faith side. So it's I don't know if the movies ever like sort of crossed over like that, <laughs> right? Um, but there's there's literally a voice for for all characters and no straw man arguments. Um, so if you, if you feel like sort of you know snuggling up on a cold winter's night and and getting into some deep philosophical and scriptural um, discussions, and then this is your movie. Absolutely. And God knows we're not doing a whole heck of a lot nowadays. Uh, we're pretty much staying at home and watching stuff. So uh, I think that might be a, a good a good movie to watch. Now, um, what are you working on next? And, and what's the next stuff you're, you're coming up with? Um, developing, developing. Um, I, I, I didn't have had anything that's been sort of COVID shut down because I've been developing stuff. And it's it's more on the lines of what you think. It's, it's uh, you know, uh, talking critters. And it's just sort of more in the, the family the family film zone that you would expect uh, uh, me to be working in. And um, so, yeah, so we'll see. Nothing I can talk about specifically right now, but hopefully a couple of pieces of IP that we'd like to get going. And once uh, once COVID lifts, we, we hope to be uh, making movies. That would be, we're all hoping that COVID lifts and we can start making movies. I mean, it's in, and, and as of this recording, we live in LA, which is ground zero at this point in the game. It's 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 really rough out here. It's really scary. Um, and God, I'm just hoping that 2021 just starts. <sighs> we see some sort of light at the end of this tunnel for a lot I'm of people. Man, I think I think um, I think theaters are going to come back full. I think people are dying to get out. Oh and, God, I would love to go see a theater again. Oh. Just uh, just go on a date. It's like the simplest date just to, to go to the movies. So so hopefully the vaccine will kick in soon enough and. Um, you know, the, all the gloom and doom we've been hearing about the industry will will sort of, you know, evaporate a bit. Look, streaming's always going to be streaming. It's always going to it's going to keep getting more and more. But um, but I, I have a strong feeling that the the theaters are going to survive and we'll be back to those big screen experiences. Absolutely. My wife the other day just said, like, we saw a commercial for a restaurant. We're like, oh, a restaurant. Oh, <laughs> like she's like, oh, I just want to go eat somewhere. I just want to go remember the days where we could just go eat <laughs> like, we're not asking a lot like just to go sit down enclosed in a room with other people close by and just eat a good meal have some conversation it's 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 uh it's a it's a weird and wacky we, we do we are living in an alternative universe i feel um without yeah. question okay. now i'm now, um, I'm going to ask you the last few questions I ask all my guests. Um, what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? Um, man, just just make films, do what you're doing, like 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 make stuff, um, reach out to the, the agents, you know, whatever, whatever the next person up on the rung that you know or you have connections to agents um like this movie you know this movie we got on hotel bible i'm talking about we did like the film festival circuit made enough noise to get a distributor um and uh and, and all that stuff so this is a movie that was shot in, in four days of interiors and one day of exterior and and we managed to get distribution so um it could happen and it happens by by making doing doing your craft and doing good stuff, you know, and and you don't I, you know you don't have to necessarily like you could start as an editor like you and I did, you know, you, you don't have to necessarily start as 
I want to be the executive producer and I want to direct the thing that I've written, you know, um, start as an assistant, start somewhere that you can work laterally into what you want to do more. Um, but there's learning steps along the way. And man, there's just so much content being made now. And, and, and like you said, Alex, like people can make movies in their garages, you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so, you know, obviously getting those movies viewed is, harder in this in this age when there's a billion things on TikTok and on, on YouTube to compete with. So that's the tricky part. But but you're learning skills along the way. Even if someone doesn't see your short film, you've you've produced a movie and, and you've you know you've shot a movie and you've edited a movie. So um so yeah, just just keep doing it and keep reaching out and and if if something comes up where you can get a foot in the door, even like, I never pictured myself as an editor, you know, um, that's kind of just happened. So if you can get your foot in the door somewhere and, and, you know, if you don't love that, then try and move laterally to the direction you want to move. If you're on a film set as a, uh, as a, as a boom guy, but you really want to be a camera operator, go hang out with the camera guys, you know, you, you learn, learn a thing or two. So, um, I, I think I guess that's I guess that's the way to do it. I don't have my I wish I had a magic wand, but I don't. Uh, and would you be fair to say that your success as a director is wholly in part from all of the years you worked in post? Because I think that you and please correct me if I'm wrong. And this is just my looking in. You got a job like a Scooby or or, you know, obviously Smurfs, but Scooby specifically because like, okay, we need a director who knows comedy, but also understands post and understands that whole world. Cause there's directors, I'm sure, you know, who don't even understand anything about post-production because I've had them in my edit suite. Um, okay. So you learning all these tools prepped you and got you able to give you these opportunities that you might've not been able to do as opposed to you trying to just, you know, jump into, like you said, the executive producer, like you want to get to the top right away. I'm like, no, if you, you chop wood, carry water chop wood carry water is that is that a fair statement i think that is that's definitely a fair statement and i think that i, I probably was hired scooby you know based on around you must know something about post so, <laughs> it's perception it's perception yeah, exactly perception exactly <laughs> i think that's less prevalent now um just because like like marvel is just a machine you know oh, yeah, and yeah. so like a director will come on. It's like here's the entire storyboard department. You want a, you want a big fight? Let them go. And, you know, uh, I, I'm not in Marvel, so I'm I'm, I'm projecting a little bit, but mm -hmm. but I think that um, but I think that it's maybe a little easier now for non technical people to sit in that chair because there's enough technical support. Around. At the, but at the highest level, though. Not like, at the indie level. At the indie level, you still you got to know some you stuff. Know yourself, man, you you got there for Parker. Um, so yeah, so I think like like you're saying, I think you chop the wood, carry the water, learn the craft, really. Um, and uh, and yeah, if you can get your foot in somewhere and then and grab it, man, and go and and you know, try and move laterally onto the next thing. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Ooh, that is a very good question. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, wow, Alex, you hit me with one. <laughs> I want to say, 
I don't think I've learned the hardest lessons yet. Um, but look, let's bring it back to the film business here. So sure. uh, I, I guess I guess when to talk and when to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Preach, brother. Preach. Sometimes you walk into a room as the director and like, like everyone looks at you and you know you, you have to talk. You know what I mean? Um, right. and, but sometimes like you want to sometimes there's other times when you should just actually listen better. And so I still don't, I, I've never been particularly, um, I've never been comfortable socially. And I don't think I have social anxieties, but I'm not great in a group like one-on-one. I'm pretty good. Like a group of 10, like not so good, you know, <laughs> around a board table with a bunch of executives. Terrible. terrible. So, but, but again, you've done okay. You've done okay. Uh, I, I I limped through, but uh, but uh, um, anyways, I guess I guess uh, I, I guess the lesson I learned is sometimes you, those things that you really really don't want to do, you, you got to suck them up and do them to get to where you want to go. So as much as I dread going to into that boardroom with a bunch of execs and doing a dog and pony show, I got to do it. And as much as I dread going to those. Um, those sneak previews where I know the cards are going to come in and people are going to start wanting to rip apart my movie. You got to do it. And you, you got to, you got to do your job and all that and, and do it as best you can do it as honestly, honestly as you can and do it from the heart. And last question, three of your favorite films of all time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this one. <laughs> well, Hmm. I'm going to say it's a wonderful life because we watch it every year. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to say Guardians of the Galaxy, the James Gunn so first good. Guardians was great. I love that. Um, and honestly, like first Men in Black, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, it's just those both of those movies. I, I go to Wonderful Life just because it's it makes me cry every year. Um, I I may go Forrest Gump even. I, I, I'm all over the place. Well, <laughs> all great. good choices. All good choices. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, man. I just I could I could rewatch I could rewatch that first Pirates any any day of the oh. week. Just love that. I mean, what Gore did in, in in that movie, and what James did in Guardians, and what Barry Sonnefeld did in in Men in Black. Like, like I wish I could do that. Like, just, just nails on. The tone was perfect. The movie was a fun ride. And um, I guess sorry, I'm giving you a category of my favorite movie. It's completely fine. It's a completely acceptable answer, sir. And and those films have and those films have hit the list here on the Indie Film Hustle podcast a couple times. So um, no, no question. Good choices. Um, Raja, man, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh and going down uh your history and, and your and your filmography and an amazing career that you've had and very lucky as you have as you has declared a very you've stepped into it sir you've stepped into it a couple times <laughs> <laughs> but it's been an absolute pleasure and i wish you nothing but the best uh, in the future my friend thank you so much i'd love, I'd love to uh, get together and talk war stories uh <laughs> offline and get, get the real the real dirty deeds <laughs> a pleasure my friend talk to you soon I want to thank Raja so, so much for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs with the tribe today. Thank you so much, Raja. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 
262. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 